Hello, welcome to the sixth episode of the Shabda podcast. I'm Ciprian Begu, a student of Vedic philosophy. And for today's podcast, I'll be asking author Ashish Dalela questions about the semantic interpretation of quantum theory. Hi, Ashish. Hello, Ciprian. Uh, semantic atomic theory or the semantic interpretation of atomic theory is the idea that atoms are symbols of meaning. And instead of the classical properties such as energy, momentum, angular momentum and spin, these atoms possess semantic properties which are called beauty, power, wealth and fame. Once we change the properties by which matter is described, we also change the nature of forces. Instead of the mechanical push and pull forces of modern science, we have to now use the forces of consistency, competition, cooperation and completion that operate between the meanings. So there is a different idea about material properties and then a different idea about material force. And this is what I mean by semantic atomic theory. Once we understand this new kind of atomism, we can also talk about a different kind of technology which can emerge from the understanding of this atomism. Let's begin. You have authored a semantic interpretation of quantum theory. And in many other places, you talk about atomic theory as an important area. Why this obsession with atoms and molecules? Aren't there more important things to talk about in the context of the Vedas? Is this some kind of Vedic physics that forms the basis of other areas of science? There is nothing called Vedic physics. Anyone who is doing Vedic physics is actually doing pseudoscience. In Vedic philosophy, there's, there are no distinctions such as physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, etc. These divisions are the creations of modern Western science. Modern science believes that there are different objects or targets for different kinds of studies of the external world. In Vedic philosophy, we are not studying the world. We are rather studying conscious experience. When you have conscious experience, you do not only have sensations. You also have thoughts, judgments, emotions and morals. Quite apart from the objects that you are studying. In fact, all these are simply aspects of our conscious experience. You cannot say that I will have sensation but not thought and judgment. In every perception we have all these aspects existing together. Therefore, when we study experience, we can speak about the many distinct aspects, but we study all of them. Similarly, whether we study physics, chemistry or biology, from the standpoint of conscious experience, we are having sensations, concepts, judgments, intentions and morals. So the physicist might think that he is studying a different subject from the chemist and the chemist might think that their work is different from a biologist. But from the standpoint of Vedic philosophy, we never study physics, chemistry or biology. We all, always study components of conscious experience and their creation. And all these components exist in every type of experience, whether you study physics, chemistry or biology. Therefore, these distinctions called physics, chemistry and biology have no meaning in Vedic philosophy because the goal is to study the creation of conscious experience and physics, chemistry or biology are included in that. 
Hence, in Vedic philosophy, we are not studying parts of the world. We are rather studying the parts of conscious experience. The Vedic material elements are components of this experience. Every experience contains all the components or parts. Therefore, unlike modern science where we separate out all these subjects like physics, chemistry and biology, we never separate them in Vedic philosophy. Nevertheless, the material objects, the properties in terms of which we study these objects, the senses, the mind, the intellect, the ego and morality which are all constituents of human experience are built up from atoms. These atoms are physically small. In fact, they are so small that each atom constitutes a position or location in space. This position, however, is not an infinitesimal point. The atoms in Vedic philosophy are small vibrations and these vibrations are termed sabda or sound. To vibrate, each atom has to have a form because infinitesimal points cannot vibrate. Due to this form, the location it occupies also has the same form. In fact, the form of the object and the form of the location are identical. Therefore, space location is not an infinitesimal point and space is not infinitesimally divisible into points. Each location has a form, so the position is only as big as it needs to hold the form of the symbol and no bigger. These locations are also defined in hierarchy to you know, other locations, which we have discussed earlier in the podcast, the tree of meanings. Therefore, not only are we changing the notion of a location, but also the notion of distance between locations. It becomes hierarchical space or a tree-like structure. The fact that these atoms are small and therefore have a definite position in space does not, however, tell us the main thing about Vedic ideology, which is that the atoms are symbols of meaning. I can create a symbol that denotes the meaning universe. The symbol can be physically small, but the meaning of the symbol is very big. Therefore, once we study symbols, the physical properties are detached from the meanings. For example, a small thing can represent a big idea and a big thing can represent a small idea. As a result, we now focus on a new type of causality based on the meaning rather than the physical property. Therefore, even though the thing is physically very small, it has a big effect provided it is a symbol of a big meaning. Therefore, the laws of nature that are based on big and small physical things become completely irrelevant. Only the laws that deal with the big or small meanings are relevant. Thus, Vedic philosophy is studying symbols and the meaning of the symbol is given in relation to a higher symbol, but each symbol is by itself a vibration. If we study these symbols simply as vibrations, then we see them physically. However, when the symbols are embodiments of meaning given through a hierarchy of symbols, then the same word is described or understood as meaning. Therefore, the main difference between physical and semantic atomism is hierarchy. <clears throat> Modern science studies, you know, does not study this hierarchy or neglects the hierarchy and you know vibrations of physical particles interacting with each other through a force field. In the semantic picture, the same physical particles are symbols of meaning, and the force field is the hierarchy that connects a symbol to other symbols. 
The physical particle in the force field of modern science changes into a theory of meaning and symbols. Therefore, the term Vedic physics would mean that I am studying the vibration physically, which is wrong. It's the study of meaning through and through. In an earlier conversation, you mentioned that these vibrations are called Shabda Brahman, indicating that there is a deeper origin of these vibrations than we can observe. Can you elaborate on this idea? Because it seems to connect matter with mysticism, isn't it? The soul in Vedic philosophy has three aspects. Cognition or chit is the first aspect. This is not a particular cognition, but cognition itself. It is the most abstract idea which then divides into parts. For example, color divides into red, blue and green. The idea and the, its parts are all called chit. Then each of these ideas expands into the instances of the idea. The instantiation or expansion is called sat or awareness. Unlike our common sense notion of awareness which goes outside in, when we become aware of the world, this, this kind of awareness goes inside out when the meaning inside is expressed outwardly. The idea here is that even when we perceive the world, the senses are going out to interact with the world rather than the world coming into the body to create an impression. So these senses are compared to the limbs of a tortoise, which puts the limbs out in order to interact with the world. Before we put the senses out, there is already a mind. So by putting the limbs out, we seek what is already in the mind, and we convert those ideas which are in the mind into objects that the senses can see. So the sat is the expansion of ideas into objects, which is why there are many instances of each idea. Now that the ideas have divided and expanded into things, each person develops a perspective on that thing by which something is foreground and something else is background. Just like when you see a painting, you create a perspective in that painting by which something is foreground and background. The ordering requires a method and these methods are the moods or emotions by which we prioritize and deprioritize things. This is called anand or pleasure because we enjoy different methods of prioritizing and our pleasure is the method of prioritizing things. So even if there is a fixed eternal reality, what we prioritize among that reality remains our personal choice. So the higher priority things are counted or ordered before the lower priority things. So this anand forms a personal space in which things are situated you know, foreground and background. On the other hand, chit is the objective space, uh, which is independent of, of, of an observer, and sat is the relational space, which is, you know, about relations between things. In the objective space, the things just exist, but they do not interact, just like our body exists as an ability, but it remains inert unless the body acts in relation to something else. Then in the relational space, these abilities in the body can interact with specific other abilities in other bodies. Finally, from the personal space, we create an interpretation of the object and their interactions. So the laws of Sat and Chit are objective, but there is a subjective feeling derived from knowing this world, which is called Anand, or pleasure. 
Once we understand these three aspects of the soul, then we have to understand that each of these three aspects of the soul have many subdivisions. For example, there are many types of emotions or happiness, many types of relations uh, to the objects of knowledge, and many types of objects. There is a very complex and sophisticated theory regarding these types. For example, there are 64 types of pleasure, 72 types of knowledge and 84 types of relations. These construct a typology of elementary types. Then these elementary types also combine with each other to create, you know, more complex types which are infinite. So the world is said to be created from all these types and their various combinations. But this world is actually conscious experience. So we are not talking about just uh, you know, external world. By world, we mean the world of conscious experience, which includes the mind, the senses, the intellect, the ego, morals, etc. So all these types are considered atomic because they are fundamental concepts. Everything is built from these fundamental concepts. In a simple sense, everything is being created from the three aspects of the soul. In a more complex sense, the soul is the source of many types of desires, relations and objects. So the theory of these types is the theory of conscious experience and everything in the universe is covered within this conscious experience. When we talk about atomism, we are talking about every type of possible experience. And the atoms of the universe are the elementary concepts or types from which this experience is created. This is a completely different kind of atomism than the atomism of modern science which is said to comprise only material objects or the external world. <clears throat> In the Vedic atomism, the atoms are constituents of conscious experience. So, when we talk about Sabda Brahman, we are talking about these types in their elementary form. And when we talk about the material world, we are talking about the combinations of these elementary types. Since the soul is spiritual, the original elementary types created from the soul are also spiritual. All these types that we talked about above are eternal, but their combinations in the material world are temporary. So in one sense, by the study of matter, we are studying the eternal types and then also their temporary combinations. So even the study of matter is spiritual if we focus on the eternal types. Because by studying these types, we learn about the nature of the self rather than the nature of matter. If we only study temporary combinations, then the study is material because we don't learn about the soul. So there is a spiritual science and what we mean by this is that it's a study of eternal types. The material science is the combination of these types. So one who understands the spiritual science can also practice material science. But one who knows only the material science may not know anything about the spiritual science. This Shabda Brahman is said to be vibrations and sometimes quote-unquote sound. So there appear to be two different descriptions. In the first description we talk about types and in the second description we talk about vibrations. Are these two separate things or are they related? They are the same description and not different descriptions. The description in terms of vibration is more detailed. 
The basic idea is that there are many types and we can understand these types as ideas. Once we have ideas, we can express them in language. But since everything is created from these types, therefore even language is produced from these types. So these types are the atoms of language itself. So the high level idea is that there are many types and the detailed idea is that there are these types are sounds of language. So that's why these sounds are called Sabda Brahman or original sounds. In yoga philosophy it is said that yoga chitta vritti nirodha that is the purpose of yoga is to stop the vritti or the modifications of chit. These modifications are like waves in the ocean. The basic idea is that the vast ocean is very calm. If you see the ocean from high above, you will see that the ocean is almost flat. Then within this vast ocean, waves are created. Like that, the chit is the ocean and parts of the chit are the vibrations or waves in the ocean. As we divide the chit we, or the ocean, we create waves. So the process of dividing the chit automatically produces the waves. It is like saying that if you have an infinite string, it doesn't vibrate. But if you cut the string into parts or divide the string into parts, then it starts vibrating. So the various ways of dividing the string into smaller strings also create the vibrations. The original chit is a very low frequency vibration, which is why it is said to be calm. But then this chit is divided to create many parts. And as it is divided into smaller parts, the vibrations are increased. But to study the smallest part, we have to know the hierarchy of the divisions from the whole to the first division, then to the second division, third division, and so on. So in yoga philosophy, the idea is that if we want to become calm and quiet again, then we have to let go of these divisions and merge back uh, you know, into the ocean of knowledge, which is the original chit. Similarly, if we want to study the world, then we have to take into account these successive divisions which creates smaller and smaller parts of the big whole. So when we say that Sabda Brahman is vibrations, we are basically talking about the divisions. And when we say that Brahman is total silence or calmness, we are talking about the original undivided state. From Brahman comes Sabda Brahman, which means the calm unity is divided into, you know, vibrations or parts. So because chit is the original type, all the divisions of chit are subtypes. And because chit is a vibration, you know, very low frequency vibration, therefore the smaller divisions of chit are smaller vibrations. So the type and vibration are really the same thing. So what is the relation between these vibrations of chit and modern atomic theory? Is it that these vibrations are being modeled in atomic theory as atomic vibrations? Yes, the vibrations of chit are being described in atomic theory as wave function. However, there are, you know, there are problems in understanding these waves because these are not like water waves. The, the, the wave employed in atomic theory involves complex numbers rather than real numbers. And there are two waves called psi and psi star which move in opposite directions. So the first problem is that these waves exist in a complex number space rather than a real number space. And so we cannot think of them in the normal way as real water waves. 
And the second problem is that there are two waves going in opposite directions. To resolve the first problem, we have to say that waves exist in a different kind of space. And to resolve the second problem, we have to say that these are standing waves such that there's a backward and forward component in the same wave. Now standing waves is not such a big problem because we are familiar with standing waves even in the case of the real world. For example, all musical string vibrations are standing waves. So the real problem comes in terms of conceiving a new type of space which has both real and imaginary dimensions. What is this imaginary component of the wave? What does it have to do with the real world remains a big problem in science. Unless we solve this problem, we cannot understand atomic theory. My answer to the problem is that space is not flat. It is like a tree with roots, trunks, branches and leaves. So the root is the superspace and trunks are the subspaces and branches are sub-subspaces and so on. When we try to flatten this hierarchy of spaces into a single space, we get complex numbers because we are subsuming the dimension that describes the position in the hierarchy within the same space and therefore we have to think about an imaginary dimension different from the real dimension. Factually, there is no such thing as imaginary dimension. It is an artifact of mathematics when we try to flatten this hierarchy. But even this use of imaginary numbers, imaginary numbers is insufficient because hierarchical space is infinite dimensional. Because each trunk, branch or leaf of the tree is a dimension. So how can we capture this infinite dimensional structure within just two dimensions? This leads to the problem of probability because we can describe one level of hierarchy by supposing that the subspace is inside the superspace. But we cannot use the same type you know, dimension or type of dimension to describe the relation between the superspace and the super superspace. So even with complex numbers, we end up in probabilities. The reality is that there are vibrations and these are hierarchical. But because we describe these hierarchical vibrations in a flat space, we end up with complex numbers and probabilities. Then we are led to more problems in understanding the nature of atomic theory due to these complex numbers and probabilities. Does this mean that if we simply changed the idea of space from flat to hierarchical, we would be able to understand the nature of atomic theory? If not, what is additionally required? Yes, it is sufficient to understand quantum theory with hierarchy, but hierarchy will change the nature of causality in science. Hierarchy means that the higher level vibration is not in the same space as the lower level vibration. So you have to go out of the lower space into the higher space, and there are infinite such spaces. So you cannot make a change, you know, and you make a change in the higher space, if you make a change in the higher space, the change is automatically affected in the lower space also. So not only are there infinite spaces, but causality is between the spaces. We cannot think of this type of causality in the physical model of nature because in the physical model, causality has to remain within a space. There is no notion of one space communicating with another, another type of space or another space in modern science. 
So hierarchy brings a new problem of causality or the problem of how to understand causality. And this problem can only be solved when we say that this hierarchy is semantic rather than physical. So the cause that connects two or more spaces is not in any other space. Rather, the space is matter and the cause connecting this space is like the force. So there are two kinds of spaces, one we call matter and, and the other which we call force. And these spaces are connected to each other by the force such that the lower space becomes superspace of the higher space, uh, subspace, sorry, of the higher space without being physically embedded inside it. The subspace is, in a sense, a part of the superspace, but it is not physically inside the superspace. So when you change the meaning in the higher space, the meaning in the lower space is automatically changed. And this model of interaction between spaces needs a new type of causality. A material particle in this type of space has possessed properties which we call its vibration, but it also has a meaning given by its hierarchical position relative to the higher spaces. So we cannot describe a particle by itself, rather we have to take into account the position of the subspace inside the complete hierarchy of superspaces. This hierarchical position itself represents the meaning. So if you take each individual particle, then it has it is a vibration, but if you take lots of these particles arranged in a hierarchy, then it's a meaning. The causal property is due to the hierarchical arrangement. So as we talk about Vedic atomism, we are talking about these vibrations, but causality is not in the vibration, but in the total hierarchy of vibrations. This means that it is not sufficient to know the energy, momentum, angular momentum and spin of the individual particles, but rather, you know, the properties of the entire hierarchy. In fact, these properties that we call energy, momentum, angular momentum and spin are not physical properties anymore. The particle in question is a symbol and these properties are the meanings of the symbol. This meaning is not one thing, rather it has many aspects. So these properties are aspects of meaning. So we can no longer describe the physics, rather we have to describe the semantics. Maybe you can elaborate a bit on what these aspects of meaning are. Are they different types of meaning? Or are they just different ways of expressing the same meaning? There are six aspects of a symbol. The first thing is that there is a physically unique individual symbol. The second aspect is that the symbol has a conceptual meaning. And the third aspect is that symbol has a form or shape by which it is represented. The fourth aspect is that the symbol can have an effect on other symbols. The fifth aspect is that the symbol has a purpose for which it has been created. And finally, the sixth, sixth aspect is that there is a process by which the symbol has been created. The six aspects of the symbol are described in Vedic philosophy as six qualities, which are called knowledge, beauty, fame, power, wealth, and detachment or renunciation. The thing that we call it objective independent particles is due to de detachment because of which we think that two things are separated and therefore independent of each other. Modern science is based on this idea about detachment which creates independent particles. 
but there are five other ways in which this individual thing gets its meaning. The first of these five aspects is that there is a conceptual meaning of the symbol or the idea that the symbol represents. This conceptual meaning is called knowledge. Then in order to express this meaning you need to employ a shape or form. The shape or form constitutes the beauty of the symbol. There is a difference between the idea itself and the form through which it is represented and the same idea can potentially be expressed through different forms. Therefore, beauty is different from knowledge. You can represent the idea through prose or poetry, the poetry can be read or sung, and so on. So the beauty is present in the final symbol, but it is in addition to the concept that is being expressed. The beauty is the form of the symbol and includes things like verse, musical composition, shape, etc. That in order to construct the symbol, we have to go step by step. You can have an idea expressed in a short sentence or a long sentence. You can use big words or small words. So there is a process by which a thing is constructed. This process is the cost of constructing that thing. In the, in the book Yellow Pill, for example, I have argued that the process of construction constitutes the cost and is therefore called wealth. The cost of something is embedded in that thing. Wealth is not merely supply and demand perception, rather by knowing the process by which something is created, we know the cost of that thing or the value of that thing. When something has been created, it acquires, it acquires the power to bring a change to the world. For example, you can use a knife to cut vegetables, a wrench to tighten a screw and so on. These things are what we call, generally call the abilities of that thing. Using these abilities, we can create change in this world. Therefore, this ability in the object to solve a problem or bring about a change in the world is called power. Again, this power is within the object as its abilities. And to use the power, you must apply it to the correct problem. Finally, an object is designed for a purpose of solving a problem. So there is a relation between the thing and the problem it solves. For example, knives can be of many types. Some knife is used to slice butter and some knife is used to cut vegetables. So the butter knife and the vegetable knife have different problems. Generally, we begin by the problem to be solved and then determine the powers or abilities it must have to function, then understand the cost of producing that thing and then the form of the object. So the intended purpose of a thing is also inside that thing, but it exists as a reference to something outside of that thing. For example, the problem to be solved. The problem creates a demand for the thing and hence this reference is called fame. Something is in demand if it solves an important problem. So qualities like knowledge, renunciation, fame, beauty, power and wealth are technical terms. They are present in each object, but knowledge is the basic concept like a knife. Then renunciation is the individual knife. The ability in the knife to cut things is its power. The step-by-step -step process by which the knife is created represents wealth. The shape and form of the knife, uh, for example, a beautiful handle or smooth surface with etching on the knife constitute the beauty of that knife. And the intention underlying the knife's creation or the user's that will use the knife represent the fame of that knife.
So when we speak about a knife, we can think of it in terms of a pure idea. We can also think of it in terms of a particular object. These are easily understood. What is a little harder to understand is that there is beauty in the knife, power in the knife, cost of the knife, and the problem the knife is meant to solve, which are all present in the knife. So when we speak about a knife, there is an abstract definition, and there are successively more refined and complementary definitions in terms of ability, cost, beauty, and usefulness. All these definitions must be provided in order to fully understand the knife. So the knife is an abstract idea and there are four ways to understand that idea which are present within the knife. So just like modern atomic theory studies all quantum objects in terms of four properties, namely energy, momentum, angular momentum, and spin, similarly there is a different way to study material objects in terms of four properties or qualities once we recognize that these objects are symbols. This new way to study the symbol will start with a high-level definition of a symbol as a concept and then we use properties such as fame, power, beauty and wealth to refine the definition of that concept. So we can say that each particle is a type due to the concept and it has four properties because that concept is refined by these additional properties and all these properties are present in the object. So if I'm getting this right, when you talk about the semantic interpretation of quantum theory, you're basically referring to the Vedic notion of atoms as symbols of meaning and the different types of meaning of an object. For example, the meaning of a knife is given by a concept, a use case, a power or ability, the form and the process by which it was created. And this description can replace the modern description of atoms in terms of physical properties, right? It is not just replacement but also completion of an incomplete theory and a better understanding of atoms. For example, as I mentioned above, we describe reality in terms of complex numbers and even this description is incomplete. That's why atomic theory is counterintuitive. If instead we replace classical properties with the six qualities, then everything suddenly becomes very intuitive. We can see that every symbol has some meaning, some beauty, some power, some use case, and some method by which it was produced. And that once it, is, it has been produced, it exists as an individual. So by changing the description of the atom, we make the atom much more understandable. So it is not merely replacement of an incomplete theory with another incomplete theory. It is rather replacement that also makes the theory complete understandable and intuitive. One of the fundamental cornerstones of modern science is the idea of force. In fact, all properties of matter are defined in relation to these forces. For instance, mass is measured through the effect of the gravitational force, charge is measured by the electromagnetic force, and so on. So, in modern science, properties such as mass and charge create force, and that force causes changes. This makes the entire theory deterministic, because once you have the physical property, like mass and charge, then you automatically have gravitational or electromagnetic force, and then the effect of the force is also automatic. In what way 
is this idea of force used or not used in the context of the atomism you are talking about? You're making a good point because once we change the idea about matter, we must also change the notion of force. We have already talked about how each object has some power which exists as the ability to cause changes. But this power is not used by itself. It just exists as the ability. To, con to convert this power or, or ability into change, two other things are required. The first thing is that there must be another object to which this power can be applied, so a relationship to the other object must be established. In atomic theory, we know that all objects do not interact with, e with each other all the time. Rather, an object will occasionally interact with some objects, and this is because all the objects don't have relationships to each other all the time. These relationships are created to produce an interaction. These relationships are the first thing to be established before a change can happen. Then the second thing is that there must be a choice to use the ability, just like I have the ability to hit someone, but there must be someone to hit, and then I must choose to hit. So what we call force in modern science is a combination of three things, namely ability, choice, and opportunity. The ability lies dormant until an opportunity is available. And even when there is opportunity, I must choose to act. Therefore, the ability is chit, and the opportunity is sat, and the choice to apply that ability to the opportunity is anand. All these three things must be present to create an effect. In classical physics, forces are deterministic, which means that the power in matter exists not as an ability, but as a force that will always act. And this force is acting on everything in the, in the universe at once. And hence there is no choice involved in deciding whether it must act and when it must act. So determinism is the consequence of thinking that there is something called force in nature. And when the fact is that this so-called force is a combination of three things, namely power, choice and opportunity. When we distinguish between these three things, then the force is seen only when the three things combine. Otherwise, there is no force. So force is again deconstructed into three different parts. And by this deconstruction, we can say that the force is under the control of choice and opportunity, or what we call guna and karma. The material object only has the power, but the, to apply the power, we need to have choice and opportunity. So by the deconstruction, the mechanical force is replaced by a non-mechanical force. Now we have to talk about how we choose to use our power and how we get the opportunity to use the power. It's like you may have, you may be a very intelligent person, but you know, you don't, if you don't get to talk to intelligent people, then you cannot demonstrate your intelligence. Similarly, you may come in contact with other intelligent people, but you may choose not to demonstrate your intelligence to them. So intelligence is just power or ability. It has to be combined with choice and opportunity to produce an effect. The world is not governed by mechanical forces, although these material objects have the power to create change. Now the forces between things are due to their knowledge, beauty, power, wealth and fame. There are four kinds of forces which arise due to the interactions between meanings. The first force is consistency and it brings things together. 
we say that birds of the same feather flock together. So knowledge attracts other knowledgeable people, power brings powerful people together, etc. The second force is competition or opposition. Just like two wealthy people try to outdo each other, two knowledgeable people try to demonstrate their superiority. Two beautiful people are envious of each other and compete with each other. So by consistency, things aggregate into the same type of grouping and by competition, they split into opposite groups. But even this tendency to compete bring things, brings things together. Just like warriors and sportsmen need someone to compete with. Then the third force is complementarity or incompleteness. Just like a lame man and a blind man will join hands, they are not similar to each other and they are not competing with each other. But they agree to cooperate with each other and be with each other in order to demonstrate the ability for mutual benefit. Finally, the fourth force is completeness, which is that there is a transcendent unifying force which brings them together. For example, people in an organization join hands to achieve a purpose beyond themselves. The difference between complementarity and completeness is that in complementarity we serve each other's needs and in completeness we serve the need that is beyond each of, you know, the need of each of the participating individuals. So these forces are pulling and pushing things. Sometimes due to consistency things come together and then due to inconsistency they fall apart. Due to competition things come together and when the competition is over they fall apart. When there is cooperation things become come together and when individuality dominates then everyone does things for their own benefit rather than uh, things for mutual benefit. Finally when we have a transcendent purpose we sacrifice our self-interest. And when this transcendent purpose is removed, then people first act in their self-interest and then even compete with each other, ultimately, ultimately finding cliques where they can coexist due to consistency. So when we think about material particles, we envision deterministic physical forces. But when we think about meanings, then first determinism goes out of the window. And then the physical force is replaced by the forces of consistency, competition, cooperation and completion. These four, these four types of forces act at different levels. For example, at the family level we want consistency. At the level of an organization we need competition. At the level of society we desire cooperation. And ultimately to find fulfillment in life we have to see all of existence as serving a higher or transcendent purpose that unifies everything. So even though it appears that these forces are acting against each other due to the hierarchy, these conflicts are reconciled. The interaction between two systems can be modeled in any of these four ways, which means that you know, we have revised the definition of force from physics to semantics. A deep understanding of these forces will take a long time, but I've tried to summarize these ideas briefly here. This idea of force and matter seems very intuitive. It is almost like we are saying that the principles of attraction and repulsion in atomic objects are like the principles of attraction and repulsion among human beings. Just like two rich people can become friends because they are rich, or they can become competitors because they are rich, or they can collaborate to further their individual richness, 
or they can join hands to serve a bigger cause. In the same way, with meanings, it is possible to think of a new type of forces of interaction. Einstein once said that all science is a refinement of everyday experience. Just like classical mechanics was created by refining the idea of billiard ball collisions, and the theory of light was created by refining the idea of water waves. So since time immemorial, humans have been looking at specific phenomena and generalizing them, insisting that everything in nature must follow this particular model. So when we talk about a semantic science, we have to look at its semantic phenomena and grasp their essence. In the book The Yellow Pill, I have described how these four types of forces manifest in four social classes, where the workers embody consistency, the businessmen represent competition, the government brings cooperation, and the moral intellectual class describes the transcendence for completeness. So just by observing the working of the society and the forces at play between individuals, we can get an inkling of what we mean by attraction and repulsion between different kinds of meanings. And with this inkling, we can start to think about a new model of force. This model is drawn from a completely different set of phenomena. We are not looking at water waves and billiard balls. We are rather looking at the interactions between sentient beings and how they come together or fall apart. And by understanding the social dynamic based on meaning, we can also understand a new theory of forces. But since the success of science is measured by the type of technology it can produce, how do you think this new understanding of force can bring about a new type of technology? It will be a science and technology of non-linearity because meanings are hierarchical. For example, you can go to a physics class and learn Newton's laws of motion. And you can use these laws to write exams where you compute the acceleration based on the force applied. This is superficial knowledge. The deep knowledge is that when I practice these Newton's laws, then I start thinking that nature is actually deterministic and therefore I have no free will in choosing. And therefore I am not responsible for my actions. So the study of Newton's laws involves a transfer of information which is superficial. During the course of this transfer, the teacher can also transfer a deeper level information which becomes our belief system and moral system according to which I am not responsible for my actions. Even those who have not studied Newton's laws or don't know physics uh, or enough physics to apply these laws to solve problems of physics can have the belief that nature is working according to de deterministic laws. So what we mean by non-linearity is that some meanings are superficial and some meanings are deep. From a physical perspective, it can appear that the same amount of energy is being transferred in teaching a person superficial or deep knowledge. But the deep knowledge causes a very dramatic change, while the superficial knowledge brings about small changes. If you look at the world superficially, then a lot of energy is required to bring about a big change. But if you look at things in a hierarchy, then a big change can be created by only expending a little bit of energy because we are causing a deep change. You can think of this in terms of the tree structure. If the seed of the tree is modified, then all the leaves and fruits of the tree are automatically modified. We don't have to separately modify each leaf and fruit in the tree. 
So the flat system is linear in the sense that to create a big change, we must spend a lot of effort and energy. But the hierarchical system is non-linear because to create a big change, we don't necessarily have to spend a lot of effort. A small effort will create also create a big change. Both quantum theory and classical mechanics are you know, linear theories in the sense that to create a big change, we need to spend a lot of effort. But when we talk about a semantic science, then a small effort can create a big change. It requires two things. First, we have to understand that nature is hierarchical so that if we are able to change nature at, at a deeper level, then the superficial change automatically follows. Second, we have to know that to change matter at a deep level, we require meaning. So this ability to control nature at a deep level from which superficial changes automatically follow is the novelty in the new science and technology. It means that we don't need to create industrialization and factories to fulfill the needs of life. We can also create the deeper level change by which food will automatically be created. There will be abundance of water and clean air. The weather will be pleasant and the body will remain healthy and strong, free of diseases. Even if something goes wrong, you will not try to change the superficial effects. You will rather change the deeper level reality by which superficial changes will automatically occur. Just like we say that if you have a peaceful mind, then lots of diseases are never created. And even if they are created, you can heal them much better if you are not stressed. So if you just talk to a person who is peaceful and calm, you suddenly feel calm, stronger and healthier. The energy spent in this talking is small compared to the energy spent in creating medicines. But in modern science, we don't understand how deep level changes can bring about superficial changes. We think that if something is, if someone is sick, then they must be given medicines instead of changing a deeper level reality. So today's science is based on linearity. That is to create big changes, we have to invest big effort. But a new science will be non-linear. Small efforts can bring about a big change. And this technology will be based on the understanding that matter is organized hierarchically. So you change the seed to create a new tree. The cause and effect in this type of science is very unintuitive if you look at the world only as sensations. To someone who doesn't understand hierarchy, this thing will seem to be pseudoscience and mumbo-jumbo. But the science involves being able to control nature at a deeper level. The other important thing we have to understand is that the material qualities of things don't automatically determine their behavior. For example, just because something is big and heavy doesn't mean it has to fall towards the earth. These qualities are just abilities, so uh, we can say that there is a tendency for things to fall if the right relationship is established and there is will or choice to use the ability. So things are falling toward the earth not because of a force called gravity. Even in the case of falling objects, there is a property in matter then a relationship between the earth and the object is created and finally there has to be a will uh, to use the property, you know, it has to be applied. So if we change the relationship between the earth and the falling object, then the object doesn't have to fall, it can also float in space. So there can be a science that manipulates matter based on deeper levels of reality and then there can be a science that manipulates matter by changing the relationship between things. We are not able to perceive these relationships but they are called fields 
or force fields in science and we think that these fields are fixed but these are not fixed just like some somebody acquires a powerful position in society and then other people will not trouble him anymore in fact because of their powerful position things become easy for them just by asking for something they can automatically get it from others whereas previously they would have had to spend an enormous amount of energy to get something done so the change in relationship is also a type of nonlinearity from some position something is easier and from another position something is very hard nature is not uniform rather by changing our position we can change the effects so what we call the field in science or a force field in science is, is a relational position to other things and there is a hierarchy here too so some things are lower in the hierarchy and they come under the control of things higher up in the hierarchy but we can take these things out of the hierarchy or change their position in the hierarchy once this change has occurred new effects are automatically created even though materially the body looks the same what seems like a very hard thing earlier suddenly becomes very easy now so the causality is not in the material object it's also in the relationship to other things so you're saying that an alternative science can create an alternative technology which is far superior to the technology available to people in modern times through science right yes it can create but our goal is not to talk about this technology because knowledge and power of the material energy can corrupt people to handle great power moral and spiritual advancement is needed because the consequences of misuse of that power are very severe therefore before we develop the technology we have to establish the moral science of action and consequence if we do not have a moral science then we and we describe a science how to obtain more power the results will be disastrous the technology that people are fascinated by today is insignificant compared to the technology that is possible with the science of meanings and relations but that technology cannot be presented immediately we have to first present the science of moral consequences therefore our focus is not on the alternative technology to impress people and establish the credibility of such ideas yes People in modern times are dazzled by technological progress and if such progress was possible everyone could immediately be attracted to these alternative ideas but all those people who are attracted to such ideas which would also be highly prone to misusing the power power should only go into the hands of people who are already responsible therefore in vedic times this knowledge was taught only to a few whose character was impeccable and it wasn't common knowledge Therefore even though great technology is possible with this knowledge we are focused on the spiritual aspect of this technology rather than its material component a counterparts the spiritual component of this technology is that with meaning we get judgments of truth right and good the judgment of right creates moral consequences and the judgment of good delivers happiness or suffering in return for those moral consequences So if we deliver technological progress but we don't teach how moral consequences are created from actions and how you cannot be happy despite technological advancement if you don't follow the moral laws of nature then this technology is very dangerous I have therefore focused in, on to the bigger problem of truth right and good 
rather than the focus problem of truth which can lead to an alternative technology. Even in the Vedic texts, it is said that by possessing the knowledge of matter, people are entangled in the material enjoyment and forget about the higher purpose of existence, which is transcendence. Therefore, our goal is to emphasize the transcendence and keep the description of material power subordinated. Once we have a good understanding of the broader science, then the science that gives the technology also tells people about the consequences of its use and misuse. We cannot separate technology from morality, which is important uh, in the longer run. Ashish, thank you for these fascinating and detailed answers. I have a lot to think about until our next podcast. See you then.